Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's let's get get our our fix. Hey, addicts. This week's episode was actually a recommendation by a loyal crime addict, and it is on the Grim Sleeper. Not the Grim Reaper. I love it. Play on words. The Grim Sleeper. (laughs) (laughs) So our drink of choice is a classic caramel macchiato. Make sure to head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com and click on the coffee tab to check out some amazing coffee recipes. Let's give our shout outs this week to Jacob G. C. Tholin76 and its official junior. They've liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all of your guys' support. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. On our website, you'll find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a pretty amazing donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, click our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to the cart and check out. The process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. In the mid to late 1980s in Los Angeles, California, bodies were turning up at an alarming rate. This, of course, was coupled with the crack cocaine epidemic, so the victims were predominantly drug users and street sex workers. Initially, local law enforcement believed them all to be related, and on September 23, 1985, these murders were announced to the public and credited to one serial killer they labeled the South Side Slayer. A task force was created, and eventually the Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD, and the sheriff's detectives realized that several serial killers were murdering women, and it was a difficult task for the detectives to decide which victims were linked. Ultimately, they came up with a list that we will be focusing on today. Here's how it goes. In the spring of 1984, a man approached Laura Moore at a bus stop and offered a warning. He said, quote, you shouldn't be out here alone. Bad guys will pick you up. Let me take you where you have to go. Laura was 21, and she reluctantly agreed. As the man drove off, he told her to put on her seatbelt. When she refused, the man reached under his seat, grabbed a gun, and shot her six times. Wounded, she managed to escape and turned back to study his face. On August 15, 1985, the body of a 29-year-old cocktail waitress by the name of Deborah Jackson was found. She had been shot three times in the chest in an alley near West Gage Avenue. Next, Henrietta Wright, a 35-year-old black woman, was found dead of multiple gunshot wounds on August 12, 1986, in an alley near the 2500 block of West Vernon Avenue in Hyde Park. Her body was found under a discarded mattress, though she may have been killed elsewhere and dumped in the alley. Two days later, the body of Thomas Steele, 
a 36-year-old black man, was found dead at the intersection of 71st Street and Halldale Avenue in Harvard Park. It is believed that Thomas either knew about the suspect's history of murders or that he was friends with one of the victims. Barbara Ware was a 23-year-old black woman and was found dead January 10, 1987, in the 1300 block of East 56th Street in the central Alameda area. A man who said he saw Barbara's body being dumped called 911 and reported what he had seen. According to a transcript of the call, the man, who said he wished to remain anonymous because he, quote, knew too many people, said someone, quote, threw her out. The only thing that's hanging out of this, like, threw a gas tank on top of her and, uh, and, uh, only thing that you can see out is her feet, end quote. He was clearly stumbling. He also reported a full license plate number for the van the body had been dumped from. One Paul Zebra, Paul 746. On April 15, 1987, the body of 26-year-old Bernita Sparks was found in a trash bin on 9400 block of Southwestern Avenue in Gramercy Park. She had been shot with a small caliber gun. Mary Lowe, a 26-year-old female, was found dead on October 31, 1987 in the 8900 block of Western Avenue in Gramercy Park. Her body was dumped in an alley and covered up. She had also been shot with a smaller caliber gun. On January 30th, 1988, the body of Latrika Jefferson, who was 22, was discovered in the 2000 block of West 102nd Place in the Westmont area. On September 11th, 1988, the body of Alice Monique Alexander, who was 18, was found in an alley near 43rd Place and Western Avenue in Vermont Square. Attacked on November 20, 1988, Anitra Marietta Washington is the only known survivor. She was shot in the chest with the same gun used in the previous slayings, sexually assaulted, and left for dead. She gave police their first, albeit vague, description of the man as an African-American in his mid-30s. She also described his car, an orange Ford Pinto. The new information led detectives to pull registration records on every Pinto in Los Angeles County, but the search led nowhere. After her escape, there were no other known attacks for almost a decade and a half. This hiatus is how the murderer would develop the name as the Grim Sleeper. Princess Bartholomew, aged 15, was a runaway who had resorted to prostitution. She was found dead on March 19, 2002 three months after she had last been seen by her family on December 21, 2001. Unlike the prior victims, she was strangled and beaten instead of shot. Her nude body was found by a passerby in the shrubs. On July 11, 2003, a 35-year-old woman by the name of Valeria McCorvey was found on Denker Avenue between 108th and 109th Streets in the Westmont area. Lastly, on June 1, 2007, the final victim, who was 25 years old, Janicia Peters, was discovered in the 9500 block of Southwestern Avenue by a homeless man who was rifling through a trash bin in an alley. He noticed her red fingernails through the hole in the bag. Her cause of death was a gunshot wound. All of these victims were found outdoors in a corridor along Western Avenue in South Los Angeles, often in alleys, and all were black females except for Thomas Steele. Many of the victims were prostitutes. 
the Grim Sleeper would have sexual contact with the victims before strangling or shooting them. The murderer used a 25 caliber gun on the victims whom he shot. One after another, leads that at first seemed to hold promise dissolved frustratingly into dead ends. But with public pressure mounting, the detectives tried whatever approaches they could, however seemingly far-fetched. They asked undercover vice officers to collect DNA samples from middle-aged African Americans arrested for soliciting prostitutes, hoping to identify a suspect. Most tantalizing was the 911 phone call reporting Barbara Ware's body, because detectives responded at the time but failed to pursue the lead aggressively. In 2004, Detective Cliff Shepard was poring over old murder cases from South LA and found a preserved DNA sample that was taken from the body of one of the killer's earlier victims. Analysis of the DNA showed that it had conclusive similarities to samples found on the body of Valeria McCorvey and on Princess Berthamu. But again, case faded with detectives no closer to finding the killer who seemed to disappear with no more killings tied to them. In 2006, an Inglewood detective made headlines when he traveled to a Fresno prison to get a DNA sample from a 65-year-old white inmate who had made incriminating statements about killing prostitutes in L.A. to law enforcement officials. But tests showed he was not the killer. In May 2007, the murder of Janicia Peters was linked through DNA analysis to 11, possibly 12, unsolved murders in Los Angeles, the first of which occurred in 1985. Investigators checked the killer's DNA against a federal DNA database of known criminals, but found no matches. One popular theory among detectives was that the killer was in prison during the two distinct periods where no killings were connected to him. Following the lead, investigators at the California Department of Corrections have been working with the LAPD task force to sort through a list of about 50,000 inmates from Los Angeles County who were convicted of violent crimes during one of those periods and do not have DNA samples on record. The two agencies were filtering the list in search of men who were in prison during both periods of the killer's apparent inactivity. However, detectives knew it was possible the killer may have just avoided detection and committed crimes that had not been connected to him. Quote, we cannot be so arrogant to think that everything this guy has ever done came with an LAPD crime report attached to it. End quote. This was stated by Detective Kilcoin. Throughout the investigation, police have been openly skeptical of the idea that the slaying stopped during the 13-year gap. They believed the murderer killed others who were not linked to them or whose bodies were not recovered. Detective Kilcoin and his team tried, 20 years later, to breathe life back into the investigation of the van. Detectives tracked down about 10 men associated with the church and took DNA samples to test against the suspected killers. A visit to the retired deacon at his home outside of Macon, Georgia, turned up nothing, as did a visit to a Florida prison. The hunt emphasized the agonizing investigation the detectives faced on a day-in and day-out basis. Long stretches of time between known killings and a disjointed, often dormant investigation that spanned different generations of detectives left police unclear for years that a single man was behind the slayings. The latest slaying was tied conclusively to the others by DNA analysis in May of 2007. So after years of futility, 
the LAPD stepped up its investigation of the serial killings when the 800 task force was quietly assembled, consisting of seven detectives, to work exclusively on the linked cases. The entire department was put on notice that members of the task force were to be summoned to homicide scenes that resembled the work of the serial killing in any way. With so many years having passed since the killer first struck and the police only belatedly linking the long string of victims to a single killer, the team of detectives was left at a severe disadvantage. Investigators pored over old case files in search of important clues that might have been overlooked. They tried to recreate the seedy, violent world of South Los Angeles in the 1980s that the early victims and killer had inhabited. The task force identified 33 old LAPD cases that have similarities to the killings and conducted the painstaking process of reviewing them. The 800 task force members also automatically received alerts when other LAPD detectives or uniformed cops report a homicide involving females found outdoors. They visited more than 15 crime scenes, but none had the mark of the suspect they were looking for. These detectives tried to track down prostitutes, drug dealers, and pimps who were active in the area during both periods of killings, hoping someone would be able to lead them to the killer. Several leads went nowhere. Can you imagine being those detectives trying to track down prostitutes and drug dealers and pimps who were clearly not documented in that time? You know, and it's in the rise of the yeah. cocaine epidemic Could and everything. Can you imagine? Literally, being those be like people? never ending. Can you imagine being those investigators? I mean, I don't even know what I would say. I don't, I don't know. Where mind, would you start? But yeah, that's insane. Man. Yeah, it's a lot. However, I mean, they did figure it out because they were able to link the slings through the ballistic and genetic evidence at the crime scene that pointed to a single killer. So they were able to narrow it down. Now they just have to find someone to match that DNA, which proved difficult. After a four-month investigation, the LA Weekly investigative reporter Christine Pelasek broke the news of the Secret 800 Task Force, the linking of Genesia's killing to a string of murders going back 23 years, and the fact that Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa and then-police chief William Bratton had been silent on the killer's existence. The mayor and chief never issued a press release nor warned the South Los Angeles community of the killer's continuing activities. In some cases, the alternative newspaper was the first to inform the families that their daughters had long been confirmed as victims of a serial killer, a decision that led to outrage over what seemed a disregard for the victims as well as the community's safety. In early September 2008, officials in Los Angeles announced that they were offering a $500,000 reward to help catch the killer who has murdered at least 10 women and a man in two sprees over the past 20 years. Officials also collected DNA data from state prisoners, hoping for a hit on the grim sleeper, but nothing turned up. On November 1st of 2008, a story about the grim sleeper appeared on the television program America's Most Wanted. The program stated that the killer was most likely a black male, but did not want to rule out anyone. A year later, then State Attorney General Jerry Brown approved a new technique that allowed officials to check whether a crime suspect's DNA partially matches anyone in the state's offender's DNA database. On February 25, 2009, for the first time, Chief Bratton held a press conference regarding the case at which police formally gave the killer the Grim Sleeper nickname chosen by LA Weekly. 
Chief Bratton then released a call from the 1980s made to a 911 operator in which a man reports having seen a body, which later turned out to be a victim of the Grim Sleeper, getting dumped by the killer with a detailed description and license plate number of a van connected with the now-closed Cosmopolitan Church. In December 2009, the LAPD re-released the original police sketch of the Grim Sleeper based on the descriptions given to them in 1988 by his only known survivor, Initra Washington. The sketch shows a black male with pockmarks across both cheeks. LAPD also released three age-enhanced composite drawings showing the markedly different faces of three middle-aged black males. A break finally came in the case in 2010 when a search of state offender records turned up a partial match. The person wasn't the suspected serial killer, but a close relative was. The familial search for the grim sleeper came up with the name Christopher Franklin. Arrested in 2008 and charged with firearm and drug offenses, he had been required to submit his DNA. Working through the 4th of July weekend, LAPD detectives drew up a family tree of Christopher, then began analyzing all the men on it. Were they the right age? Did they live near the murder scenes? Was there anything in the background to explain why the serial killer had apparently stopped killing for 13 years, then resumed in 2003? They were just trying to get all of their answers from this family tree that they built. From that painstaking process, Christopher's father emerged as a likely suspect. Police focused on the elder Franklin, tailing him to ensure he was a DNA match. A detective posing undercover as a busboy at a restaurant collected a discarded pizza crust, fork, napkin, drinking glass, and cake crumbs. On July 6, 2010, it was confirmed that the DNA of the suspect in the killings and saliva found on victims' breasts was a match. His name? Lonnie David Franklin Jr. So who is Lonnie David Franklin Jr.? He was a black male born on August 30, 1952 in South Central Los Angeles, California. Little is known about his early life and upbringing. We do know he was a private in the U.S. Army stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. Here's why we know this. Around 12.30 a.m. on April 17, 1974, Ingrid, then 17, left her boyfriend's home and was walking towards the train station when three U.S. Army soldiers pulled up along her in their fiat car. The men, who were stationed at the nearby Kelly Barracks, asked for directions, then offered her a ride home. Ingrid got into the car, and the men drove her to a remote location at Knife Point and took turns raping her. One of them photographed the savage attack. Then they drove her home. Before she was dropped off, she coaxed one of her attackers to give her his phone number. Our man, Lonnie Franklin, who was then a 21-year-old army cook, obliged. Ingrid went to the hospital and reported the attack to the police. They scheduled a setup to capture her attacker. Ingrid arranged to meet Franklin at the train station, and when she saw him, she dropped a handkerchief, and that was the signal for the police to get him. This girl was brave mm -hmm. and super smart to get her phone, his phone number. Absolutely. So... Tip out there, I pray that nobody gets into this situation, but if you do, try to get their phone number and then be a good set salesman them up. and <laughs> set them, up. them into being stupid. Yes. So Franklin was arrested on May 6, 1974, following an eight day trial in which Ingrid testified. 
He was convicted and sentenced to three years and four months in prison for the rape and kidnapping of Ingrid, as well as the attempted kidnapping of an unidentified 18-year-old woman that same night. The younger female screamed, which alerted the neighbors and the police were called. The other two army men received four-year prison sentences for the rape and kidnapping and attempted kidnapping. Okay, so there's another little tip is to scream. Scream as loud as you can. Bloody murder. Scream. Scream, kick, smack, hit, all of it. Get anybody's attention. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So after serving less than one year, Franklin was released from prison and was given a general discharge from the U.S. Army on July 24th, 1975. The other men served their whole sentence in prison. Franklin returned to the United States and married to a Belizean woman, Sylvia, with whom he had two children, one son and one daughter. While we couldn't find his daughter's name, we do know, of course, that his son's name is Christopher. Franklin continued on to be a garbage man for the Los Angeles Department of Sanitation, a neighborhood handyman, a skilled mechanic, and even a garage attendant working for the LAPD, the 77th Street Division Station Briefing. He had a criminal record in the United States dating back to 1969, with his first arrest being for auto theft when he was only 16 years old. He was arrested for two charges of possession of stolen property in 1993 and 2003, one charge of misdemeanor assault in 1999, and one misdemeanor battery in 1997. Franklin was sentenced to a year in jail for the first stolen property charge and 270 days jail for the second one. He was arrested on other charges several times in his life, including for burglary and firearm offenses. Law enforcement missed an opportunity to catch Franklin because his DNA was never collected. In 2003, when he was on felony probation, his DNA was supposed to be entered into the DNA database, but it wasn't. In 2004, voters approved of Proposition 69, a law which states DNA must be collected for all people charged with a crime. It also requires the expansion of the DNA database. In July 2005, Franklin was on unsupervised probation. During that time, Franklin's DNA was, again, never entered into the system. On July 7, 2010, one day after the DNA match, Franklin was arrested at his home without incident and charged with 10 homicides and one attempted murder. He was held without bail and was facing the death penalty if convicted. He was not charged with the death of Thomas Steele or the attack of Laura Moore because there was no DNA evidence linking him to those cases. When they caught the man believed to be the grim sleeper serial killer, LAPD detectives assigned to the case knew their job was far from over. During the investigation, on a tidy street of single-family homes in South Los Angeles where Franklin lived for decades, residents described him as a kind and compassionate neighbor who volunteered in the community, helped elderly residents of their block, and fixed their cars for free. Quote, a very good man. His daughter just graduated from college, I believe, said Eric Robinson. He's 47. Quote, he's a good mechanic, worked out of his garage. I've been here since 1976. That's how long I've known him. I'm not pretty shocked. I'm all the way shocked. End quote. Dante Combs, who's 27, said he visited Franklin the week prior to his arrest to ask him to install a timing belt on his car. Quote, you needed your car fixed? He'd do it dirt cheap. He'd help you out however he could, cut your grass, put up your Christmas lights. He'd help all the elderly on the block, Combs said, as he stood behind the yellow crime tape that sealed off Franklin's block. Following Franklin's arrest, then-LAPD Chief Charlie Beck released this statement. 
says, quote, we never gave up on this investigation, not for one minute. Our detectives work relentlessly, following up on every lead they received. Their hard work has resulted in today's apprehension of this vicious killer. I am hopeful that the hard work of these men and women will bring some closure to the families who tragically lost loved ones during the last 23 years, end quote. Los Angeles police scoured his South L.A. property for evidence. Authorities combed his house, as well as a garage, vehicles, and a trailer in the backyard. Among the unsettling discoveries was a cache of about a thousand photographs and hundreds of hours of home video found in the walls of his garage showing mainly African-American women, many of them partially or fully nude and striking sexually graphic poses. The people in the images appear to span a wide range of ages from teenagers to women in their 40s or older. Many of the subjects are conscious and smiling. In some, however, the women appear unconscious, either dead, heavily drugged, or asleep, and date back up to 30 years. Most of the pictures appeared to be taken in or around Franklin's motorhome, car, and his backyard garage. It was an eerie find in a case involving a man who is thought to have sexually assaulted his victims before or after killing them. Police also cannot account for large portions of Franklin's life, including a 14-year gap between his alleged killings, during which investigators suspect he killed other women. Moreover, the bodies of several of the victims were found in trash bins, and Franklin worked as a garbage collector in the 1980s, raising the prospect that bodies of other victims could have been dumped in landfills and never found. That's like a pretty good job. Uh, For a serial killer. For a serial killer. Yeah. Don't take tips, but I mean, that's actually really smart to be a garbage collector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no way he took, there's no way he took a 14 year hiatus. I mean, they don't think he did either, but they can't prove it. He probably like got smart with his job and he's like, what am I doing? Yeah, figured it out. Mm -hmm. Detectives set out to identify the women on the film and tape, knowing that some could be additional homicide victims. There were several photos of each woman and police whittled the collection down to 180 images. They believe that about 20 of the pictures show women also captured in the other photographs. For months, they slogged through images in missing persons databases and coroner records, hoping for lucky matches. The work proved fruitless. With the detectives no closer to identifying the women, police turned to the public for help. At a news conference on December 16, 2010, the Los Angeles Police Department released cropped versions of the 180 photos that showed the women's faces, hoping that women themselves, their family members, or acquaintances will recognize them and contact investigators. Quote, these people are not suspects. We don't even know if they are victims, but we do know this. Lonnie Franklin's reign of terror in this city of Los Angeles, which spanned well over two decades, culminating with almost a dozen murder victims certainly needs to be investigated further, said Chief Charlie Beck of the LAPD. He continued to say that they were sensitive to the harm and embarrassment the release of these photographs could cause women who never told their family or friends about the encounters. In the end, however, they decided that the need to identify the women outweighed the potential harm. Police have employed this strategy before in other high-profile serial cases. With little known about Franklin, they hope the women will be able to provide answers that have so far eluded detectives. 
Quote, as a police department, we have an obligation to account for the welfare of these women, said veteran homicide detective Kilcoin, who headed the task force that hunted Franklin. Quote, we're trying to fill in the life and times of Lonnie Franklin over the past 30 years, and talking to people is a big part of that. These are obviously women who had a conversation or two with this guy. I won't be surprised if we find some of them were his victims, end quote. Detective Kilcoin also stated, quote, the question of the day is why? What was he doing to get these women to do this sort of stuff for him? Typically, people use drugs as leverage, but we didn't find one iota of evidence that he was into that, end quote. Louisa Pensati, one of Franklin's attorneys, expressed concerns about the release of the photographs, saying prosecutors have not yet provided her with copies of the images as part of the legal proceedings. She added that the move will make it difficult for Franklin to receive a fair trial. Quote, I think it's proper that they try to find out everything that they need to, but to do it now and in this way will taint the jury pool. End quote. At least 35 of those women remain unidentified. On April 5, 2011, police released suspicions that eight additional women may have been Franklin's victims. Two of the eight women disappeared during the 13-year period. A third victim went missing in 1982, before the first of the ten known killings. No physical evidence implicates Franklin in any wrongdoing related to the eight additional women, however, three were of particular concern. Aaliyah Marshall, a high school senior when she disappeared in 2005, Rolinia Morris, a 25-year-old who also was reported missing in 2005, and an unidentified woman whose photograph was found at Franklin's residence when he was arrested. Police discovered Aaliyah Marshall's Hawthorne High School identification card, Rolinia Marshall's Nevada driver's license, and photos of Rolinia in, quote, compromising positions, and a photo of an unidentified woman in a refrigerator in Franklin's garage. In the refrigerator, police also found photos of Janicia Peters, one of the 10 women Franklin is accused of killing, as well as a photograph of another person. But that one was too dark to be of any use in the investigation. It appears images found in the refrigerator were of special significance to Franklin because he kept it separate from the photographs of scores or other women found elsewhere in his residence, which he shared with his wife, Sylvia. In addition, the families of four other missing women approached police after Franklin's arrest, concerned about the possibility that they were victims. Those women lived lifestyles similar to those of the confirmed victims, including a drug use and occasional prostitution. They also were known to frequent Franklin's South L.A. neighborhood at the time they disappeared, Kilcoin said. Detectives believe Inez Warren, who was killed in 1988, may have been a victim of Franklin because her killing has similarities to the others Franklin is accused of committing. Like many of Franklin's suspected victims, Inez Warren was known to use drugs and turn occasionally to prostitution, and her body was found in an alley off Western Avenue with a single gunshot wound to the chest from a small caliber handgun. Detectives had previously suspected Franklin in another unsolved murder, but later dismissed the possibility. Sylvia remained faithful to Franklin throughout the investigation and trial process. She had been termed as a, quote, loyal and devout Christian wife who didn't even cooperate with the police and regularly visited her husband in jail. This was, of course, before his conviction. 
the wife and mother of two, raised the couple's children throughout her husband's rape and killing spree, unaware of who he really was underneath. A retired FBI agent claimed that Sylvia was a strong woman with a strong belief system who was just holding on to her husband because he was innocent until proven guilty. It seems like this was true because when Franklin was convicted in 2016, she and her entire family did take a step back. Franklin was indicted by a grand jury in March 2011 in the 10 slayings to which he was linked through a combination of DNA and ballistics evidence. Franklin pleaded not guilty and remained in custody awaiting trial. The large volume of evidence in this case, some dating back 30 years, had caused a lengthy pretrial discovery. The trial was delayed several times and opened on February 16, 2016. The defense declined to give an opening statement, but had the opportunity to do so after the prosecution rested. Former LAPD Detective Dennis Kilcoyne, the first witness called, said it was Genesia Peters' 2007 slaying that prompted the search for a serial killer after the attacker's DNA matched two earlier cases. Then LAPD Chief William J. Bratton ordered up a task force to search for related killings. Quote, we started connecting the dots, Detective Kilcoyne said. During trial, gruesome photos were projected onto a screen. Valerie McCorvey's half-naked body left in the street, ligature marks etched into the 35-year-old's neck. Genesia Peters folded into a metal position, her head and hands seen through a hole in a black garbage bag. Alicia Alexander found nude and underneath a mattress in an alley. The images elicited gasps and whimpers from courtroom spectators. A woman covered her eyes and collapsed into the man beside her who buried his head in his hands and wept. Franklin never turning to look at the photos. Jurors also viewed video of Franklin's interrogation by police. Quote, pay close attention to his body language and his conduct during that interview process as he laughs and makes light of the photos of the dead women lying on the table in front of him, the district attorney said. The DNA discovery topic was controversial at best. In the United States, California and Colorado were the only states to not have formal laws allowing this procedure, and it had to be approved by the attorney general on a case-by-case basis. At the time, then-state attorney general Jerry Brown approved a new technique that allowed officials to check whether a crime suspect's DNA partially matched anyone in the state's offender DNA database, which is how we got our match to Franklin's son, Christopher. Franklin's attorney said that an expert hired by their team had determined that DNA collected from two crime scenes linked to their client matched convicted serial killer Chester Turner. The judge ruled that their expert wasn't qualified to testify. In court papers, the defense also listed more than a dozen other men as potential sources of DNA found at crime scenes tied to Franklin. One witness recalled that Franklin would frequently bring prostitutes into his home. Closing arguments began May 2, 2016. Defense lawyer Seymour Amster challenged what he called inferior science of DNA and ballistics evidence. During his closing argument, he introduced a new theory, a mystery man with a mystery gun and a mystery DNA was responsible for all of the killings. He said the man was a, quote, nephew of Franklin's who was jealous because his uncle had better luck with romance, though he offered no supporting evidence or any name. 
Amster based the theory on the testimony of the sole known survivor, Enitra Washington. She testified that her assailant said he had to stop at his uncle's house for money before the attack. Washington later led detectives to Franklin Street. The district attorney scoffed at the mystery nephew notion, saying it was as rational an explanation as a spaceship killing the woman. She said the killer had just lied to Anitra about an uncle and was probably stopping at his house to get his gun. The attack fit the pattern of seven previous killings and showed how the killer carried out the crimes. The bullet removed from Washington's chest matched ammo retrieved from the previous victims, and she provided a detail that would later prove telling, that her attacker took a Polaroid photo of her as she was losing consciousness, which was later discovered in Franklin's house. The snapshot of Anitra wounded, slouched over in a car with the breast exposed. Quote, you're truly a piece of evil. You're a Satan representative. You're right up there with Manson, Anitra told Franklin. She also testified that Franklin pulled up alongside her in an orange Ford Pinto, offering her a ride. After she initially declined the offer, Franklin fired back, quote, that's what's wrong with you black women. People can't be nice to you, end quote. She, quote, felt sorry for him and ultimately accepted the ride. After a while in the car, Washington suddenly felt blood coming from her chest. She realized she'd been shot and asked Franklin why, to which he responded that she disrespected him. He soon pushed her from the vehicle and left her for dead, but not before raping her and taking her photo. The jury began deliberating May 4, 2016. On May 5, 2016, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. was convicted of 10 counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Franklin showed no emotion as the clerk read the 10 murder verdicts in Los Angeles County Superior Court. After the initial conviction, prosecutors presented more evidence against Franklin during the penalty phase of the trial. Remember his very first crime committed back in Germany? Well, Ingrid testified that Franklin, as a U.S. Army private stationed abroad, was one of three assailants who gang-raped her in Germany in 1974. Before the sentencing, the defense attorney made two last-ditch efforts to keep his client off death row. The DA quickly shot down a motion for a new trial based on allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, as well as a motion calling for a sentence of life without parole instead of death. On June 6, 2016, a Los Angeles County jury sentenced the serial killer to death, closing an important legal chapter in the grisly slayings that terrorized South Los Angeles for more than two decades. The sentence came towards the end of an emotional hearing where more than a dozen family members and friends of victims read statements, many of them repeatedly asking why Franklin chose to attack members of his own community. Laverne Peters, Janicia Peters' mother, told the court before Franklin was sentenced, quote, The defendant took my daughter, murdered her, put her in a plastic bag, a trash bag, like she was trash. My hope is that he spends the rest of his glory days in his jail cell, which will become his trash bag, end quote. Other family members in the audience were saying, Amen. Five of the jurors who convicted Franklin attended, occasionally nodding. Before the hearing, one of the victim's sisters thanked a juror and said, God bless you. The juror winked at her. During the hearing, a woman spoke of losing her best friend. But she still hears her voice in dreams. 
A victim's uncle said he remembered how loudly she used to cry when he babysat her as a child. A reminder, he said, of how she did everything in her life passionately. At one point, the nephew of Henrietta Wright, whose body was found under a mattress in an alleyway in 1986, addressed Franklin directly, stating, quote, You're a cold-hearted dude. Franklin nodded slightly. Mary Alexander, whose 18-year-old daughter was murdered, spoke directly to Franklin, quote, I'd like for Mr. Franklin to turn around and face me, she said. Franklin turned his head slowly, locked eyes with her. She said, I'd like to know why. Franklin whispered something in response. She repeated her question louder. Why? Again, he whispered. Reporters were told after the hearing that Franklin muttered, quote, I didn't do it. Quote, I know she didn't do anything to hurt you, Alexander told Franklin. I know that. Franklin's face softened and he nodded. Alexander told Franklin that she had thought a lot about forgiveness, but said she was finding the concept extremely difficult. Quote, I'm still battling that. When another victim's sister told Franklin that she recognized him, he got angry, shouting, That's a bald-faced lie. These are the only words from Franklin put on record throughout the duration of the trial proceedings. That's crazy because they showed, like, gruesome pictures and were accusing him of all these things. And the Mm -hmm. only thing that he speaks up about is the fact that someone said that they think that he looks familiar to them. Yeah. Like, why does that bother him so much? Exactly. It's really weird. So Laura Moore wasn't listed in the criminal complaint against Franklin, but Los Angeles police detective Darren Dupree said he is, quote, very confident that she is one of his victims. Me too. That makes two of us. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we're going to wrap up this week's episode on part one of The Grim Sleeper. Come back next week, addicts, to hear part two which will include the verdict and what the judge had to say during that sentencing phase, some quotes from his attorney, and our discussion questions related to this case. We also want to take this time to thank you so much for all of your support. We truly couldn't do this without you. So come back for next week for part two. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.